Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. The following is an encore presentation of Issues Etc. Both Roe v. Wade and Obergefell contradict natural law. You'll never be on the wrong side of history when you're on the right side of natural law. For a long time now, the church has been infected by the world to make a woman think that to be of value, she must basically become a man. The dare that we can give is, I dare you to read this. I dare you. Because the Word of God is living, mighty, and active, sharpened to his sword, and it's even living for people who are deniers and rejectors of it. The one truth is that Jesus the Christ was born, died, and rose again from the dead for the salvation of men. Utilization review nurses love to listen to issues, etc. while they work. Can I help you? What were you taught about the Christian Crusades in school? Maybe you can't remember because you were taught hardly anything. So you turn on the History Channel and you maybe try and educate yourself about that particular era of Christian history. And you hear that the Christians were, by and large, the aggressors against a passive Ottoman Empire or earlier manifestations of Islamic aggression. And that the Christians were waging a religious war against Islam. Is that true? And what about the individual Christian crusaders themselves? often depicted as villains. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Friday afternoon, July the 29th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to talk with Raymond Ibrahim about Christian Crusaders. He's author of a new book, Defenders of the West, where he takes a second look at some of the leaders and the actors in the Christian Crusades. Then we'll wrap up this week's programming, looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, talking with Pastor David Peterson about Jesus feeding the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8. Raymond Ibrahim is a regular guest. He's Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Gatestone Institute. He's Fellow at the Middle East Forum and the David Horowitz Freedom Center, and he's author of several books, including his latest, Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. Raymond, welcome back. Hello, Todd. Good to be with you again. Why are so many of those who defended Christendom from Islam considered villains today? Uh, Well, I think because most people are ignorant of history, intentionally so, and uh, instead of being cognizant whatsoever about accurate history insofar as the Islamic world's interaction with the West, they're fed a false pseudo-history, which presents Muslims as sort of passive, peaceful, and then all the conflicts begin with the Crusades. And so if you speak to your average American and say, when do Muslims and Westerners start having problems historically, I bet you nine times out of ten they're going to say the Crusades. And the Crusades, of course, ostensibly appear to be Westerners or Christianers going on the offensive because, of, after all, they left their European homelands and traveled to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, and fought with Muslims who had been there, again, in the, in the popular imagining amongst most Americans, for centuries or forever. I mean, most people, again, don't understand how Islam spread throughout what we call today the Middle East and North Africa. And because of that, I think, oh, let me 
clarify that real quick. So in the 7th century, when Muhammad dies in the year 632, the traditional date given for his death, and that's when the Muslims, who are Arabians at this time in the Arabian Peninsula, really uh, unify and then go on the jihad, as it's described. And they conquered all of North Africa, from Egypt in the east to Morocco in the west, and they conquered Southwest Asia, which we call the Middle East proper, which uh, included the modern nations of Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Iraq. And then much later, centuries later, the Turks took Asia Minor and so forth. It's important to keep in mind that all those countries I mentioned used to be more Christian. Christianity permeated those countries more than in Europe in the 7th century. So that really was the heart of the Christian world. And you had five major Christian centers, which were Rome, of course, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. And in the first century, four of those were gone and swallowed up by uh, Islam. Now, that's the backdrop of what started hostilities between Christians and Muslims. It's that Muslims actually invaded and swallowed up and annexed most of the Christian world. And they took, of course, Spain in the year 711 is when they invaded it. And as I said later, the Turks took Asia Minor, went into the Balkans, and then the Tatars, who were Islamicized Mongols, actually, the Golden Horde conquered Russia and also subjugated it along Islamic terms. So there's always been that long war, but unfortunately, it's presented in a vacuum, just the Crusaders, these imperialist white racists, as they're portrayed today, just decided to go and ruin things and kill Muslims in the Holy Land. And again, that's out of context, because a decade before that, the Turks were colonizing and destroying Asia Minor, and the Byzantine Emperor Alexius was the one who called on the Crusaders and the Pope to come to his aid. And literally, according to the sources, hundreds of thousands of Christians were being killed or enslaved, and thousands of churches were being desecrated. So that's the context of why the Crusades happened, but we're not told that, and so that's why I think when you talk about these men that I wrote in the book and Defenders of the West, immediately the popular perception is they're the bad guys because we know historically it's Christians who start fights with Muslims, when of course the opposite is the truth, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book as a corrective. So what else do many historians get fundamentally wrong about the Crusades? Well, again, so for starters, the cause of it, it was actually two points, two causes, was one, to help fellow Christians, you know, their co-religionists in the East, as well as their own Christian kin, Western Europeans, who would go and do pilgrimage at the Holy Sepulchre or anywhere in the Holy Land, and they were being attacked in the years before the Crusades and pillaged and raped and killed, and there's a lot of description of that, and some of it is in the book. So one was to help fellow Christians, and two was to, as they call it, liberate the Holy Sepulchre, which was this ancient church that was built by Constantine, believed to be over the site of Christ's abode. Well, it was a huge structure, and it actually covered where he was crucified, where he was buried and, and resurrected, and it was a massive complex, which actually was destroyed before the First Crusade, and it was rebuilt again, and then Muslims were attacking it again, and so it was a constant headache, so they felt they had to go and take over Jerusalem, basically, to keep it as a safe, because uh, technically it was considered the most sacred site in all of Christendom. So it was, it was those two reasons, but historians just get it all wrong. The main reason they get it wrong, I think, and is because they project our worldview and judge the past through it. 
And so, for example, what I just said about the Holy Sepulchre, most people don't even understand that, even if they are Christians, because modern-day Christians don't really have an appreciation for something like sacred sites or relics or that sort of thing, even though it's of immense importance, pre-modern Christians. But it's just uh, once you strip everything from, you know, you strip the religious aspect, as so many historians do, you're left with what seems to be a bunch of disgruntled, as they called them, second sons. So one theory for the longest time was that all these second sons in Europe who were dispossessed and had nothing to inherit because they were second sons actually decided to go in the crusade because it was an adventure for them to go and become richer and find land and so forth. And that's absurd if you look at the reality because most of them suffered so much, most of them actually died, most of them got nothing for their headaches except what would be called martyrdom. And most of them knew this was the case because it was a very arduous undertaking to travel thousands of miles, often on foot, through inhospitable terrain, with enemies everywhere, showering you with arrows and famine and you know lack of water and resources and so forth. So it was always a very dangerous endeavor, and most people just died, <laughs> sometimes not even at the enemy's hands, just from nature. So that's not true. They did it because of their faith. And one can judge that as being misplaced or not. That's a whole different thing. But unfortunately, too many historians just anachronize, and they prioritize our way of thinking, and then they color those people of the past through those lens. And it's just a complete mess. And it ends up, like I said, with us seeing Christians and, and these early defenders or crusaders through a cynical lens, and we see them as just people trying to take advantage and attacking the other. And of course, we have all these new terms that we use, and again, further anachronize the past. We call them racists. We say they were part of the patriarchy, their toxic masculinity. So all of these terms now, of course, apply to all of these heroes that discuss in the book, even though in their context and in objective reality, they're the complete opposite of all that. So what was the state of affairs between Islamic and Christian lands when Godfrey of Boulion came on the scene? So Godfrey is the first hero I chronicle. He's chapter one. I have eight chapters, and I talk about eight different heroes and their times, and his name is shorthand for the first crusade that we're discussing, which Pope Urban called for in the year 1095 after getting all these terrible stories coming from the East and what was happening to Christians at the hands of the Turks, mainly the Seljuk Turks at this time. The First Crusade didn't have any official leader and didn't have any kings like other Crusades. It was just mostly made up of lords and dukes and other magnates, and he was one of the major leaders. There were about four or five, depending on, on how you want to look at it, but he was definitely one of the major ones, and he came from what we would today call Belgium even though it was described variously and differently. You know, it could either be seen as part of the German Empire or, or the Frankish Empire. He, of course, is called a Frank, uh, just like all European Christian crusaders were in Arabic sources. And he and his brothers, Eustace and Baldwin, actually sold so much of their land. So they're a good example. They actually gave away much of their... Uh, they, they were born actually very rich. They're aristocrats. Their father actually went was at the Battle of Hastings with William the First of Normandy, and so they definitely had you know lots of land and properties and prestige. They sold much of it to fund their crusade and gave other lands away in the name of Christian charity, and then they took off and they were one of the, they were among the first to reach 
well, first they all stopped in Constantinople, but then they traveled across the Bosporus and reached Asia Minor. And he was one of the first to be there. And he's always, you know, his story is very prominent and, you know, it's very adventurous. I mean, at one point he attacked a bear that was chasing a fellow pilgrim in the woods and uh, it seriously mauled him and he almost died and he was out of commission for a long time. But then he reappears again in the sources in very valorous and heroic way. And he's always at the thick of the fights. And there's one anecdote where he supposedly splits a Turk in half with one sword stroke. But it's it's so heavily mentioned in the sources, and they and then even the people who write it say, yes, we saw it with our own eyes. They anticipate people will believe it. At any rate, he actually also ends up, I don't want to give too much away, I don't want to be a spoiler, but he, he ends up being the first king, essentially, of Jerusalem after he and the other first crusaders reconquer it and liberate it in their, in their eyes from the Islamic tyranny that was that was going on in there. But he only he was very pious, according to the sources, and he would only take on the crown as long as he was not called a king, because he said, I will not wear a crown of gold in the city where my savior wore, wore a crown of thorns. And so he took on the name, actually, Defender of the Holy Sepulchre instead of King, even though he effectively was king. And in many ways, he's considered the most, he's like the chivalrous hero of the First Crusade. There Again, there's so many other names amongst the first leaders of the First Crusade. There's Bohemond, there's Raymond of Toulouse, and there's so many others who also play their part, but I, I chose him because even William of Tyr, the archbishop who wrote a chronicle, and he, who's a near contemporary, basically said we consider him to be the greatest amongst our first, you know, our leaders of that first generation of First Crusaders. So, yeah, and his story, you rarely get it because you have to piecemeal it together from various sources. There isn't one book written about him per se because there's so many other First Crusaders. But I think the first chapter is adequately done in a sense to give you a good idea of his life and adventures of the Holy Land. We're talking about the Christian Crusaders with Raymond Ibrahim. He is author of The Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. We'll discuss Roderick Diaz of Vivar next. Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Listen to what you want, when you want. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. 
The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, Freedom, Vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. The Substitute Organist Service has been a great blessing for our worship life here at Christ the King Lutheran in Riverview, Florida. Pastor Kevin Yoakum on the Substitute Organist Service. Now our organ plays rich liturgical music every single Sunday, and it's very affordable. You pick the hymns, you pick the liturgies. It's very simple. Just know when to push play. You can find out more about the Substitute Organist Service at churchmusicsolutions.com, churchmusicsolutions.com. Happy birthday to the U.S. Army Chaplain Corps, providing spiritual support since 1775. LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces supports all Lutheran Church Missouri Synod chaplains who serve on active duty in the reserves, the National Guard, Civil Air Patrol, and the Coast Guard Auxiliary. Find out more about their work at lcms.org slash armed forces. Serving those who serve, LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. We're talking about the Christian Crusaders with Raymond Ibrahim. He's author of several books, including his latest, Defenders of the West. So, Raymond, introduce us to Roderick Diaz of Vivar and explain how he encountered the forces of Islam. So, Roderick is actually a contemporary of Godfrey. He's a Castilian from Spain. And, you know, and this, again, underscores what I was saying earlier, which is that the jihad and, and the Islamic attacks were just so multi-tentacles, because again, when you think of the Middle Ages and you think of conflict, you think of the Crusades in the East and the Holy Land. But in fact, you had Crusades going on in Spain, which is the furthest west from the Holy Land. So one is on the easternmost coast of the Mediterranean, one's on the westernmost coast. That's because, as I, as I mentioned, the Muslims had invaded Islam, Spain in the 8th century, and completely colonized it, and again, engaged in lots of atrocities, which are all mentioned in the book. And then um, Rodrigo or Rodriguez or Roderick of Vivar is actually better known as the Cid. So when you hear the movie, for example, Charlton Heston, El Cid, that's about that man, Roderick. I think till today he's considered Spain's national hero. And uh, it's telling that he rose in the context of jihad and counter-jihad, or basically reconquista. So he's in the context of when the Spaniards were trying to reclaim and win back most of Spain, because after the initial Muslim conquest, most of the Christians who would not submit to Islamic rule 
were holed up in the northwest quadrant of Spain. It's an area called Asturia, a very mountainous and hospitable region. And from there, the Reconquista began, where the Christians tried to reclaim Spain slowly, piecemeal, as they spread further south from their mountain stronghold. And El Cid, Roderick Rodrigo, is a very pivotal character in the beginning of it. And uh, he lives, like I said, he's contemporary with Godric, he's contemporary with the First Crusade, and he fights really what the best way to describe it is, is a jihadist ISIS-like group known as the Almoravids, who came from Africa. So now the Spaniards in, in Spain were actually reclaiming much of Spain from Islam, and the Muslims in Spain, who, who the sources call the Moors, called on their co-religionists fellow Muslims from North Africa to come to their aid, and they got this very militant, very jihadist organization known as the Almoravids, who are just like ISIS. In fact, they would wear pure black, cover everything but their eyes, you know, where it had a black flag that says the same thing, you know, no God but Allah, Muhammad is his prophet, and so forth. And they marched in and really devastated Spain in the first battle. They actually created a massive pyramid of heads from Christian Spaniards, something like 2,600 heads they chopped off on the battlefield, made a pyramid, and then had the Muazin go up on top and start calling Muslims to prayer as they desecrated the remains of their Christian foes on the floor and started screaming Allah Akbar and so forth. So that's the context where El Cid Rodrigo comes in, and he actually fights them back, and really amazing stories from his time, all of them from the primary sources. He actually had a monk follow him around and wrote a chronicle about his life. And also there's a famous poem of the Cid, which still today college students often encounter it in courses, which was written about him and also is near contemporary. And so a lot of very interesting, fascinating stories and adventures from the Cid. And again, you know, it's interesting because the stories in, in this book and Defenders of the West are such that they really give meaning to the phrase that fact is stranger than fiction. Because when you look at really what they went through and then the stories are just the sort of thing that Hollywood should come up with. And if they did, you'd think it was fake, but it's really not. It's true. And just the severity of the battles and how long they lasted and how outnumbered the Sid often was. And yet he would always come back and prevail against this jihadist group, the Almoravids, you know, the medieval rendering of ISIS and so forth. It's, I think, just the eye-opening when you see the reality of it. Tell us about Richard I of England, Richard I. Sure. So Richard I, he's still known today. He's given us the, the, the moniker Lionheart or Lionhearted, because that's what he was known as, Richard the Lionheart. And so he was really, he spearheaded what's called the Third Crusade. So Godfrey was in the First Crusade. The Second Crusade is not much to talk about. It, it was very unsuccessful, except in Spain, because some, some of the crusaders from Europe, who actually tried to go to the Holy Land during the Second Crusade, went to Spain to help the Spaniards, and actually they they triumphed very well against their Muslim foes there. But the Third Crusade was also, it features Saladin, Salah Adin, the Muslim leader, and Richard. So they're the two main opposing forces. So Richard goes around the year 1190 or so, is when he lands into, in Jerusalem, and his story is well recorded, again, by contemporary sources and chroniclers, as well as Muslims. 
And his story is just, it's just amazing. Again, I mean, you really understand why he got that name Lionheart when you see the great odds that he was constantly facing and how he would essentially almost single-handedly terrorize the Muslims. I mean, he's portrayed as something of a giant in the texts. And I think I discussed that a bit in some footnote, but I think they even exhumed some of his body and he was apparently six foot four or something to that effect, for which is immensely tall for the time. But it's interesting because even the Muslims who were his enemies and suffered at his hands actually write down the same things that you would think are exaggerated exploits that Christians wrote just to magnify you know, Richard's name. But they write the same thing and they validate it, just the way that he completely single-handedly would terrorize them to the point that they all hid from him and would never want to encounter him, including Saladin, who before Richard entered the scene was really this triumphant sultan, but Richard managed to actually recapture, uh, reclaim some of the gains that Saladin had made during the Third Crusade. So a very singular figure, Richard, and one reason why he's still famous still today, because when you read again the sources and you see what he did and, and what he went through, just it's very hard to appreciate with our modern day mentalities and not to mention our comforts and to see again this man was a king actually so he was the king of england and he had lots of lands in france and he gave it all up and went again in the name of piety and then in the name of reclaiming the holy land so again for a christian cause and he gave it all up and he went and he really suffered a lot including when he came back and he was imprisoned by a fellow christian and also he actually had to cut his crusade short because of the French king, Philip, as well as his brother, John. So this is where all the legends of Robin Hood and John in England and King Richard comes back. So that's where all that comes from. But yeah, he had a lot of difficulties from everyone, not just Muslims, but his own brother and fellow kings and so forth. And, uh, you know, he, he made a, a very heroic stand against it all. It's very impressive. Raymond Ibrahim is our guest, author of Defenders of the West. We're talking about Christian Crusaders. Several of those crusaders were canonized by the church for their defense of the West and of Christendom. We'll talk about them, Ferdinand III and St. Louis, next. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod School? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools.
The Christian religion is not like a buffet line, a modern smorgasbord of beliefs offering a wide range of tempting choices. Rather, it is the good deposit handed down to us in the scriptures through the history of the church that we might believe and confess who Jesus Christ is. To learn more about Pick and Choose Religion, pick up your copy of the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. To subscribe, visit cph.org witness or learn more at our website witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. Comment Line, 618-223-8382. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. When Martin Luther preached the dedication for the Torgau Church, he asserted that nothing else happened in this house but that our dear Lord speak to us and we respond in prayer, thanksgiving, and praise. Issues Etc. Guest, Dr. John Pless. The same could be said of Concordia Theological Seminary. This is a place where our Lord speaks to us through his word, and we respond in joyful and thankful confession. We therefore invite you to visit our campus where the word of Christ dwells among us richly. Learn more about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Forming Servants in Jesus Christ to Teach the Faithful, Reach the Lost, and Care for All. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. ctsfw.edu or 1-800-481-2155. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Friday, July the 29th, we're talking about Christian Crusaders. Raymond Ibrahim is our guest, distinguished senior fellow at the Gatestone Institute, fellow at the Middle East Forum and the David Horowitz Freedom Center, and author of several books, including his latest, The Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. Who was uh, Ferdinand III of Castile, and why was he in time canonized by the Church for his defense of Christendom? So Ferdinand, um, okay, we jump now from El Cid, who was living in the 11th century. Yeah, he died, I think, right around 1099. You jump now to the year 1200, about a little more than a century down the line. And the Reconquista continues going and fighting against Islamic hordes coming from Africa, North Africa, Berbers and such. And now in the year 1200, Ferdinand is born also known as Fernando in the sources, depends on which rendering. I usually refer to him as Ferdinand. He's actually related to uh, Rodrigo El Cid. Uh, He's something like his fourth grandfather. And he becomes king of Castile. And from the start, he's so committed to the crusade in Spain, not least because of his lineage. He has a lot of crusaders, amongst whom are El Cid. And actually, Richard was his granduncle by marriage. Um, so a lot of these guys, it's interesting to see how interrelated they are sometimes by marriage, but so he obviously grew up in a very crusader mentality and as a youth, he was so committed to it and he trained very hard at arms as a young man 
And once he became king, he completely spearheaded the Reconquista. We can say he actually finalized it because by 1248, he had really conquered all of Spain, central Spain. There were others, of course, uh, such as James of Aragon to the east of Spain and Valencia and so forth, who were also engaged in the Reconquista. But he's really known for getting all the major cities. He, he liberated Cordoba, which, of course, was one of the greatest cities historically, and also Seville in 1248. And with that, all that was left was Granada at the southernmost tip of Spain as being an independent Muslim kingdom. And even it was a tributary to him. So it, it was a vassal state and had to pay him money. And of course, <laughs> couldn't engage in jihad or any of that or take slaves and any of that. So he really, in many ways, brought the Reconquista to an effective end in 1248. And a very pious man, again, according to the sources. So he became canonized as a saint. I think he's the only Spanish king in, in well over a thousand years to get that honor. And his uh, his body is supposed to be, I've seen pictures as well, supposed to be uncorrupt. And it's it's visible in Seville, in the Cathedral of Seville, in some glass case, which is visited by pilgrims all throughout every year. And so that's one of the reasons that he's very famous and he's sainted to this day. He's considered a saint. And again, I find it ironic that this man whom just ostensibly you think of as being a saint or a holy person, it's actually almost all of it is in the context of warring against Muslims, which again underscores how Spaniards and the Christians of Spain understood the conflict with Islam. You know, it was Muslims had stolen our land, had Islamized it, had destroyed churches and killed Christians and enslaved women and children, and we are righting that wrong and bringing Christ back to our original domains. So that's the thinking, and that's why a man such as Ferdinand III became a saint. Another who carries that appellation of saint is Louis IX of France. Why did he go to war with Islam? Right, and Louis, again, it's interesting, because Louis is a first cousin of Ferdinand, and also a, his granduncle would be Richard I. And again, he was in the Holy Land during the time of Louis and took another massive blow, and a, a new fanatical Muslim group had risen and attacked Jerusalem, which was then in Christian hands, massacred everyone, mass rapes and enslavement, women and children, and so forth, and a new crusade was called, and he was the only king who had actually come to the summons as, as the king of France. And he also went... His life is probably in many ways the most amazing, and it's very well chronicled. There's so many sources, a wealth of sources for his life, so that's that was good, and it allows one to really dig deep and bring in some interesting aspects of his crusade. But he went to the crusade, which was mostly centered in Egypt, and it didn't turn out too well for him. There were a lot of losses and setbacks and so forth. But I think that's what makes his character a very interesting character, because even in the face of adversity, including he was a hostage in Egypt for a long time and very mistreated, but he kept his faith. And uh, it's very interesting, even, even his contemporaries couldn't believe it, including religious orders and people, priests and monks and so forth. And anyway, you know, his story spans many decades, and he goes back to France and so forth. And then there's another attack on the Holy Land decades later. And he goes again on the crusade. And again, it doesn't really turn out the way he wants. And he actually ends up dying from plague, along with one or two of his sons, because his family would often go with him. It was 
was a, it was a pilgrimage. And that's another thing to understand. Crusades were seen as pilgrimages. It was like a holy undertaking. And so sometimes women and children would even go in amongst uh, during the crusading, and that was often the case with Louis. But he, too, for his pious lifestyle, which I discuss a bit in the book, from the sources, very quickly became a saint. And I think he, too, is the only king of France to get that honor to be a saint in well over a thousand years, along with his cousin, Spain. So what should we know about John Hunyadi's part in the crusade? Not a well-known name. Right. So now after we've talked about, I think, five or so of the main heroes I discussed out of the eight, now we turn to the Balkans. And really the crusading era, as we know, it is mostly over. The Holy Land has finally been swallowed up by Islam again. And um, now the crusade has turned from being an offensive warfare whereby Europeans travel to the Holy Land and try to recover it to being a, a defensive endeavor because now you have the Turks invading Europe proper after they had conquered Asia Minor. Now they've actually entered, uh, they got a toehold in the Balkans. I think the first place was Thrace or in Bulgaria. This is the context for John Hunyadi in the 15th century. He's born, I think, sometime uh, late 1380 or 90 or maybe very early 1400s. I have the dates in the book. And basically he was a governor from Transylvania, and uh, who worked for the Kingdom of Hungary and really rose up in its ranks. And he became a, I mean, he's a Hungarian hero today, even though some people will argue what his true ethnicity is. Some say he's actually more of a Romanian, which may be an anachronism. Others say he's Hungarian. Anyway, he, he was a voivode, or he was the warlord, really, of Transylvania, which was part of Hungary at this time. And... He became a governor eventually, and he rose up in the ranks. And what was interesting about him is he really spearheaded all the counters against the Ottomans, and he would always be successful. So at a time when most of the Europeans were in a defensive position and really you know, taking a defensive posture against any kind of Ottoman incursion from the Turks, he would actually argue the opposite and, and go in and attack Ottoman domains with outnumbered forces. And it actually worked. It was a sort of shock tactic that the Ottomans didn't know how to respond to. And it made him very popular in Europe or in Christendom. And he got many followers. And, you know, his story, again, is, is one of, of decades, not just one battle that goes on back and forth with some are victories, some are defeats, and so forth. And it really all culminates at the Siege of Belgrade, which occurs around, I think, 1456. Again, the dates in the book... And he's an older, he's an old man now, or definitely elderly for the time and sick, but he's, he spearheads the defense of the Hungarian kingdom against Ottomans at a time when even the king of Hungary fled and ran at the advance of the Ottoman army because it was so massive. And Hunyadi, again, with a small force of men who were known, who were called the peasant crusaders because all the great lords had fled or were just not uh, cooperating. All the peasants just took up hammers and sickles, and none of them even had a proper sword. And they joined his forces, and uh, miraculously, they actually beat the much larger Ottomans and put them to retreat and run. In fact, that's the church bells of noon. When the church bells ring at noon, it was inaugurated to honor that victory against the Ottomans. And again, you know, a few people 
I would argue Protestants and Catholics are even aware of the origins of this, why the church bells of the moon ring. But here, once again, we see a major thing in, in Christian history that is once again rooted to Islamic jihad vis-a-vis Christendom, in this case, a defeat against the Islamic jihad and putting them to run at the hands of John Hunyadi. Raymond Ibrahim, author of the new book, Defenders of the West, is our guest. Christian Crusaders is our topic. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Folks, you have until Labor Day to order a video and audio recording of the 2022 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The speaking lineup consisted of Dr. Pavi Rossinen, Bill Barr, Pastor Will Whedon, Dr. Albert Moeller, Pastor Chris Rosebro, Dr. Joel Bierman, and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We'll send you a link, username, and password for a tax-deductible contribution of $300 or more at issuesetc.org or give us a call, 618-223-8385. On the other side, we're going to talk about George Castriati and why he has a nickname in Crusader history that links him to Alexander the Great. The Church's Music from the 20th Century. The 17th Century. The 11th Century. century. The fourth century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Talk radio for the thinking Christian. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memorial Press, saving Western civilization, one student at a time. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., whyforlife.org. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org. Enter your email address, 
and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Issues Etc. is listener-supported. We rely on you for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Now, if you appreciate Issues Etc., please consider making a tax-deductible gift today. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. You can also donate by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Issues Etc., Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. And thanks for your support. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking about the Christian Crusaders with Raymond Ibrahim. He's authored several books, including his latest, Defenders of the West. Raymond, who was George Castriati, and why does he bear the nickname Skanderbeg? George Castriati was it's, it's the Institute of Janissaries, the Ottoman Turks, other Muslim dynasties did as well, but they would uh, they really perfected the art of enslaving young Christian subjects, uh, in this case from the Balkans, and enslaving the strongest and most robust of their youth, males, and then sending them straight to military school, where they would become Ottoman soldiers, and they would be trained in a very Spartan sort of atmosphere, and by the time they graduated, they would be really the greatest and most feared element of the Ottoman army, these Janissaries. And that's what George Castriotti was, an Albanian. He was the son of a nobleman. And he was taken in, I think, at the age of nine. And he and his brothers were taken from their father, and most of his brothers died or were killed by the Ottomans in their youth. But he grew up to be a really fearsome soldier and eventually became a general, and he was forcibly converted to Islam. And so they gave him, they would give them other names. They gave him the name Alexander because he was from Albania, which was, and still is in ways, connected to Macedonia. So they thought of him as Alexander the Great, Alexander I of Macedon. And that was the name they gave him. And Bey or Beg in Turkish means Lord. So Skender or Skender Alexander, Beg, Skender Beg meant Lord Alexander. So that was his, basically his name as an Ottoman Turk as a Janissary. But he broke away uh, all throughout these years in his heart. He was still a Christian, and he was basically doing what he had to do to survive. As, as mentioned, his brothers were all killed. And when he got the chance, he actually escaped and renounced his Islamic upbringing, reclaimed his Christian heritage, and went back to Albania, and really mustered the Albanians to resist the Ottomans. And very impressive, in many ways, He's probably the most impressive of all the heroes I document in Defenders of the West. And that's not my opinion. It's just that's been history's opinion. More has probably been written about him because he actually withstood the the Turks for he fought them for over a quarter of a century or about 25 years and beat them in every single battle, always vastly outnumbered. So he's known as the Albanian Braveheart, sort of a. You know, William Wallace of Scotland, he's, he's a counterpart because he just lived for 25 years just defying everything that the Ottomans sent towards him. And they, and they, the sultans themselves would go there at the head of massive armies that they would still lose, both because he was a great general, but he was also very brave and was able to harangue his men into action and inspire them. 
so his story is in many ways the most um, inspiring and impressive of all. And it's, uh, I think his chapter might even be the longest because of that. And there's a lot of sources because he's also closer to us in time and space. You know, he's 15th century. So it's easier to find material on him than people like Godfrey from the 11th century. Some might consider this final one unlikely. Vlad the Third, Dracula, why is he included among those who defended Christendom from Islam? Sure, Vlad is included because, well, first and foremost, amongst the Romanians, or his descendants, he's a Wallachian, he's a hero, because he actually, again, much like Hunyadi and Skanderbeg, and he was a contemporary of both, he actually also defied the Islamic encroachments from the from the Ottomans, even though he had much to gain. He, too, was a captive in his youth of the Ottomans, basically a hostage, but when he finally made it back to his throne, he just resisted them and really terrorized them in ways. In fact, that's where so much of the scary, uh, you know, he is Dracula. Uh, the whole idea of Count Dracula comes from Vlad the Impaler, which is the, the Vlad we're discussing, Vlad the Third, And that's because he really perfected the art of impaling his enemies. And again, this is one of those things that most people aren't aware of, that it, he learned it. As I mentioned, he was he was a hostage of the Turks. He learned it from the Turks because it was the Turks who really perfected it and used it regularly. And basically, he was fighting fire with fire, essentially. But we don't get that. Again, it's brought in a vacuum, and we're not told that part about it. But that's why, really, he was doing it to terrify the Turks. But, I mean, there's also a lot of, and I discussed it in the book, there's a lot of exaggeration that comes from his time, because during his time was the invention of the printing press, and it was used for propagandistic purposes by his enemies to make him look really worse than he was. Because, as, as I mentioned, other people impaled at the time and engaged in all the sorts of violence that he did. And also the idea of him being Dracula comes from one particular episode where he really terrorized the Turks when they had invaded his country. Because he, in the middle of the night, he came with a small group of men, and they just did the unthinkable, which is actually raided the massive Ottoman camp as it was asleep. And he was searching for the sultan. He wanted to decapitate him and basically cut the snake's head in, in order to kill it, because he couldn't fight the army in a proper conventional war. And much was written about that, and I duplicate a lot of it in the book. All of that is what gave, created the legend of Dracula, the scary figure that travels in the night and, and massacres and kills and impales. But again, once you strip all of that or understand it in context, in that he was fighting fire with fire against the Muslims, you understand why he is, till this day, considered a hero in Romania. You say that without these defenders and many more like them, there would not have been a West to speak of today. What do you mean? I mean that, again, we're dealing with a lot of historical ignorance and amnesia. And worse than that, I wish it was just a matter of Americans being ignorant. They're often fed a false pseudo-history, which is often the antithesis of real history. And so the long and short of it is the idea of the West, it wasn't some inevitable thing that just had to happen. Actually, it could have been snuffed out in many times and in many circumstances by many enemies. And for the longest time, the main enemy was Islam, because that's, as I mentioned earlier, Islam swallowed up most of the Christian world, and therefore it surrounded the rest of the Christian world. So if you look at, you know, Christendom used to be all of Europe, but also all of North Africa and all of Southwest Asia. 
But all of that was swallowed up, and the rest of it, Europe proper, was continuously bombarded by Muslim attacks for well over a thousand years. And if there wasn't enough resistance, I have a nice quote from Teddy Roosevelt in the conclusion, and he basically validates what I'm saying. If the Christians of Europe could not resist and eventually actually overcome the Muslim attacks, the idea of the West and Western Europe would have been snuffed out. Europe would have suffered the same fate as Egypt and Iraq and Syria and all these other nations that were once great, but, you know, were swallowed up by Islam, and that was the end of them, essentially. We've even seen it, you know, Spain, that is Europe, that's the westernmost part of Europe, and that was under Islamic rule. So were the Balkans, and many of those countries are still suffering the repercussions of being under Ottoman control for centuries. So it wasn't inevitable that the West would emerge triumphant and spread around the world and so forth. It could have actually been snuffed out, and it, it was in certain areas and certain times. And again, if you think about it, a big chunk of it was completely swallowed, which was the North Africa and, and the Middle East. Again, you think of those countries, you think you don't think of them as being connected to the West in any way. You think of them as being part of the East, the Islamic world, the Arab world, and so forth. But that's only because of what happened. If you were living in the Mediterranean in the 5th century, the 4th century, or whatever, those would have been part of the Roman Empire, part of the Christian world. And it would have been normal to understand that. But they were completely severed, and the whole of Europe could have happened if it wasn't for stalwart defense by men such as those that I call defenders of the West. Raymond Ibrahim is Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Gatestone Institute, Fellow at the Middle East Forum, and the David Horowitz Freedom Center. He's author of several books, including his latest, Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. You can purchase this new book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Raymond, thank you. Thanks for having me, Todd. In Hour 2 of Issues Etc., we'll be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary. We'll be talking with Pastor David Peterson about Jesus feeding the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay with us. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. This is Molly Hemingway encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, Etc., 
every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. This is Jeff Schwartz, General Manager of Lutheran Public Radio, with a message for listeners in the Mountain and Pacific time zones. We pledge to have Issues Etc. podcasts posted daily, no later than 5 p.m. Mountain, 4 p.m. Pacific. This will allow you to download and listen to the latest Issues Etc. podcast weekdays during your evening commute. Again, if you live in the Mountain or Pacific time zone, download Issues Etc. before you leave work and listen during your drive home. Do you dread going to work out? Performance Fitness in Edwardsville offers a fun, supportive, tight-knit community and environment. Visit them on the web at performancefitness618.com or call 618-692-5063. Performance Fitness is the facility in the St. Louis Metro East where the focus is on member results, not membership numbers. 618-692-5063 or performancefitness618.com. Performance Fitness of Edwardsville. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.